On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, an uncertain future for a King Island dairy family. At one point, there used to be so many dairy farmers, they used to catch up once a month for a discussion group. And, you know, it's a bit of a social thing. You had people to talk to about the dairy and stuff. And now, well, we're one of only two family farms left, the other two dairy farms that Saputo owns. And a breakthrough in taking wool off sheep without a shearer. The idea is we create the weak point with an injection and we wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, for the wool to grow under that weak point and then we break it with a simple machine that just takes it off with no combs and cutters. In fact, we hope it'll be done without any people involved. Shearing sheep without shearers, that story coming up. And in just a moment, we talk to a former dairy farmer and a current dairy owner who supply milk to King Island Dairy. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Friday, which does mean Richard Bailey will be along later in the program to detail the latest lamb, sheep and cattle prices, especially on the mainland. Also today, Tasmanian sparkling winemaker Ed Carr, fresh back from a trip to England to claim another award for the House of Arras. And the very smelly fruit durian being harvested again. Our brave reporter Matt Brand travels to the harvest to see and smell the fruit for himself. Ever had a durian? Let us know. Plus, we check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. And that number is 0438 922 936. 0438 922 936. First up today, dairy and retired King Island dairy farmer Gary Strickland is hoping the cheese factory and farms will be brought up and revitalised by a new owner. Fifth-generation dairy farmer supplied milk to the factory for 45 years and says in its heyday it was taking in 30 million litres. Gary Strickland told Meg Powell the dairy factory has been taking less and less milk for a number of years. There's actually no new dairy farms have started here for at least certainly since 1996, I think, so that the factories, the factory, National Foods, Lion and then Saputo have gradually just cut the supply down to an unviable level. There's nowhere near that 30 million litres then at the factory? Oh, no. Well, there's two small dairy farms and their own farms and they're probably down, I'm only guessing now, to say seven or eight million litres a year. Wow. Which is hard, which is hardly viable. And if you turn around and get a drought, well, um, or something goes wrong because they've pushed that supply down so low, it's put the whole thing at risk. That was one of the main reasons why um, we got out of daring. We'd build our herd up to 500 and looking and it was getting too hard to get staff here because they'd cut the number of dairy farms down so much that it wasn't viable proposition to get young people over from the mainland that had training to be herd managers or farm managers or whatever like that and it just made it too hard to get staff here so that in the end when you get older and everything it was just it made it too hard so we had to get we put the farm on the market unfortunately yeah. Wow. When was that? Five years ago. Just before the last sale or just after? Yeah, that's right. It was six months before the last sale. How, um, as someone who is was so heavily involved in the dairy industry just by virtue of your family being so involved, how did you feel about the, watching this slow decline of, of the industry over there? I was certainly not very happy about it because it was almost—it's almost like the whoever owned the factory was purposely trying to look for an excuse to get out, um, and they just kept keep on pushing the supply further and further down. But like I said, once once National Foods bought lactose and they had 90% of the soft cheese market in Australia, um, that was when we had the downturn of the, the dairy industry here and. Um, it's been pretty tough for dairy farmers since. What would you like to see happen, if, if anything? Well, the, 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 best, the best thing that could probably happen to the dairy industry, if they sold it to a, to a company that, were, that was interested in growing out the King Island Dairy brand, and they would have to then look for suppliers here on the island to be able 
to survive and that would grow out the whole industry and that would be the best thing that could happen to the island again because they'd have to put out more product and and employ more people and build up their supply base and that would be great. But um, hopefully Saputo will be able to, there'll be someone around that will come in and buy the brand and, and the factory. How, how important is that factory to the community? It seems if you oh. live there long enough, you work there at some point. Yeah, well, that, that's right. The Blumen, um it's pretty close to the um, biggest employer on the island, as in direct staff there, plus dairy farms, plus other people around that are involved living off that. So that you've probably got 100 people out of a population of 1,500 that rely on the dairy industry, which is a big, big thing, to the enormous thing to the island. Particularly yeah. considering how few dairy farms there are. Yeah, well, there's only there's, most of the milk now comes from the factory's own supply to farms, and there's a couple of other small farms that that are left. They've just certainly um, dwindled the supply right down to make it nearly almost unviable. So I certainly hope that they can. That would be the best thing that could happen to the island if they could sell the factory and someone come by in here and built the industry back up again. Are you still living on the island, Gary? Yep, yep. No, we subdivided a house on the farm and living in the living there, um, still living on the house on the farm. And is, uh, is someone running the farm? We had a lease agreement when we gave up five years ago. We had a lease agreement with a company, Dairy Factory, um, operation from Tassie that came over and leased it with an option of buying it in five years and they've bought the place up but when they bought it they closed it down so the dairy down so that was a third of the supply on the island at that time so when that was closed down and Saputo made no no, no movement about replacing that supply um, it didn't that wasn't sending out a very good signal. Fifth generation King Island dairy farmer Gary Strickland, or former dairy farmer, chatting there to Meg Powell about the potential sale of the King Island dairy factory and the farms owned by Saputo. The Lancasters have been supplying the King Island milk factory for nearly 30 years. Back in the peak of production, there were 27 dairy farms. Now the couple are one of just four. They told Meg Powell they're unsure about their future. At one point, there used to be so many dairy farmers, they used to catch up once a month for a discussion group. And, you know, it's a bit of a social thing. You had people to talk to about the dairy and stuff. And now it's, well, we're one of only two family farms left, the other two dairy farms that Saputo owned. How does that feel? (sighs) Feel? Bad, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Something my, my grandfather started here and... Um, yeah, like when I came back to the to the farm after going away to school and um, working for a couple of years in Melbourne, um, yeah, the, the dairy industry is thriving. And to what it is today, yeah, it's quite bad. A real shame, particularly for an island that's, uh, by all accounts, perfect for dairy. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. How did you guys feel about the news that the Saputo facility might sell again, that this is not the first time it's sold either. Yeah, we're not particularly surprised just just because of the way the way everything's been going over the last few years, like just dairy farmer numbers dropping and and, and no, not, a, not really any um, encouragement or anything. What would you like to see happen? I guess it's not set in stone yet what is going to happen with there. What, what's the best scenario for you? Well, if someone was to come in and want to buy it and, you know, get excited and do some different lines that the dairy used to do years and years ago, once again, and even do town milk supply, which the island and the tourists would love, um, like that would be the ultimate you know, more since the beef prices have dropped, maybe you know some might want to convert back to dairy. Maybe and this is you know I don't know that this would happen, but say they chose because no one wanted to buy it, but they wanted to close it instead of closing it because it would just sit there and you know they wouldn't make any money from it. Somehow, if the government could help get it so that it was 
King Islands and the people that are there would still have their jobs. And I suppose uh, you're not the only ones with jobs that rely on it. There's a, a lot of factory workers. When you think about the population of King Island, 60-plus workers, that's a big proportion. I know, and then that takes families, that takes then that takes kids away from school, that takes teachers from the school. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll affect every every service, I would say, flights, everything. It's um, a bit of speculation, I guess, but how are you feeling about the future of your farm? What is it looking like? Oh. <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't really know. Like, there's yeah. a few... Few options, I guess, but we'll just wait and see what what comes. I guess for now. That's Kelly and Phil Lancaster, dairy farmers on King Island. They're a little unsure about the future now that Saputo has indicated it may sell the factory. In a response, uh, Saputo says, as King Island dairy's historic roots are deeply embedded in the region, we hope to find a buyer for the facility to ensure the continued success of its renowned specialty cheese products. We recognise the potential impact on any decision may have on the King Island community, especially our employees and dairy farmers, and we are committed to thoughtfully considering all possible scenarios before any decisions are made. That's from Saputo. Well, coming up in just a moment, we'll talk shearing, uh, shearing jobs, and we'll talk maybe the future without shearing jobs. This week on Landline, removing wool without shearing. So I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. And a treat for tractor lovers, the legendary Upton Tractor. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, the depressed lamb market has meant uncertainty for jobs in the shearing shed and also lower wool standards. That's according to Shearing Contractors Association of Australian Secretary Jason Letchford. He says not using wool classes or rouseabouts might save farmers money on labour costs but could mean losing money on the value of fleeces. He's told Eliza Burlage it's a frustrating trend considering how hard they work to train hundreds of new workers to enter the shearing industry. We really worked hard as an industry to address that and attracting more people to the industry and we attracted around 500 people since 2020 to come and go through our training schools. For That was for Victoria and South Australia alone without counting the other states and about 70% of those people are still working that we've put through training which has been a great result but this year's been well this spring especially has been a real um, turnaround because with you know the, the significant fall in in the the meat price of of lamb or you know the fat lamb market is is almost you'd call it collapse we're, we're seeing the situation where and and crossbred wool is not highly valued but it's we're seeing a situation where a lot of growers are choosing not to have shed staff in the shed or maybe downgrade the wool classer into just being a shed staff and therefore losing one or two of the shed staff because they're not seeing the value in the crossbred wool so it means there's lack of consistency now coming on and it's just sort of starting to happen where we're seeing shed staff that are, should be fully employed in, in this time of year that, that are not fully employed they're only getting part weeks or you know three weeks in the month at the moment. What does that mean, I guess, well, first of all, for, for the wool, the products that are coming through these sheds, what does that mean if people aren't, you know, classing them enough? Is that a bit of a chicken and egg thing for their value? Absolutely. Well, it, it, it's more, I think it's more, you know, if you talk to anyone, you know, on the price side of things, people are not real, or some growers are not realising the value of classing the wool because, you know, example I was given the other day that if crossbred wool is classed, it gets $3.80 a kilo, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're not classing it, you're only getting around $2.80 a kilo, so you're losing that dollar a kilo. And if there's three or four kilos on the animal, well, there's three or four dollars you're missing, whereas the price of class or a day, I know through my numbers, is worth possibly 40 cents a head. So you're sort of giving away several dollars per animal in not having the wool class. So that's 
what I'd call sort of a, a cash flow view of the world, thinking you're going to save a little bit of money up front, whereas you're not sort of seeing the revenue in the, at the other end of it. So, I mean, everyone will like to have that debate and do the different numbers to me, but that's really as an industry how we see the numbers and how we promote and try and encourage growers to, to see the value in staffing your, your shearing shed well with, with highly skilled staff and that gives them continuity of work. We keep them in the industry. You get more for your end product and, you know, to me, that that, that makes a lot of sense. So we're a little bit dumb, dumbfounded or you know, gobsmacked when we, we hear of these practices going on where, you know, sheds are not well staffed with, with skilled and qualified workers. With the staff that may have recently come through training schools, you know, how many people were taking up training in roustabout and wool classes and, you know, what, what could that mean for keeping them in the industry? Well, yes, like it literally was hundreds of people, several hundred that, you know, we've got on our books that we, we sort of track and, and keep in touch with and, and, and do follow-up training with. But, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a bit of the old, um, you know, first in, first out situation. Largely, we're going to lose those people because if their annual income falls to a certain point where they can go off to a different industry and get, you know, more continuity of income, uh, in other words, get a get a wage or salary job, you know, it could be in a, in a warehouse or a factory or the supermarkets or that system, we're going to lose those workers. And then as sure as you know, we know the sun will come up every day. We know that the commodity price of meat and wool will improve. You know, we've gone from all-time highs to relatively all-time lows, and it, you know, it'll change. And then we'll be screaming out for staff again, and and much much to our frustration because those people that we promised the world and didn't deliver, well, we're not going to have them rushing back in a hurry, only to be disappointed again if that the short-term view or the short-term cycle that they get trapped in. Shearing Contractors Association of Australia Secretary Jason Letchford. Fiona Rawley is a wool classer register with the Australian Wool Exchange. She says farmers taking shortcuts in the shearing sheds has meant an increase in wool not being prepared to standard. It's a bit of a rural myth, I call it, in that when one person hears of these shortcuts being taken, then it becomes a, you know, a standard and people are moving towards doing that. So there has been an increase in wool, I would say, that um, is not being prepared to the standard, which is the code of practice, uh, which the Australian Wool Exchange deems to be the standard for preparation of wool in Australia for sale at auction. I think growers need to be aware and make sure that the decisions that they're making are in their best interest. Wool at auction that isn't classed or classed by registered classer or prepared to meet the code of practice standard is of a lesser option for our customers. Now, with crossbred and lambs wool, as these are lower value types, it can be easily misunderstood that that means that they don't need the preparation standard. But crossbred and lambs will have customers, and our customers expect that wool to be prepared to the code of practice because wool that's prepared to the code of practice performs predictably for them. So that predictable performance, contamination-free and prepared to the code of practice is what our customers recognise when they're purchasing wool. Well, that's classed wool. So if I was a, a crossbred lambs wool purchaser, for example, and I wasn't able to find the volumes of wool coming through the market that meet my expectations, then that can become a real that can become problematic and maybe into the point where they start to move away from using crossbred lambs wool, and and then that becomes an issue where this is self-perpetuating the lower value. So I think growers need to be mindful that they're weighing up and making the correct decisions because to put your wool in the most competitive position at market is to have it classed and prepared so it looks and is presented to its best. In fact, you could say that it's contradictory in a way that in a depressed land market, why would you not then also prepare your lamb's wool to make the best money that you possibly can if you're Sheep are not meeting that expectation, at least make your wool meet the expectation. So this is probably the, the situation we're in now is that there's sort of some advice and some decisions being made around preparing wool that, that don't meet the code of practice. The other thing is that growers also need to consider that they are probably paying contract price for those sheep to be shorn, regardless of the preparation standard. So if they're paying for their contracting teeth to come in and, and they're paying good money for that, then also why not have that wool class? That is Australian Wool Exchange Wool Class of Register, Fiona Rawley, ending that story from Eliza Boulage. And we also heard from the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia Secretary, Jason Letchford, about shearing. Now, there's a story you uh, will have to watch on Landline this weekend, especially if you're a shearer. 
or a, a wool grower. There's 60,000 wool growers in Australia and many are struggling to find shearers. It's hoped breakthrough research into biological wool harvesting will give growers more options when it comes to removing the fibre. Cara Jeffrey has the story. I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. That's University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind, and he's doing his best to convince the wool industry he's not reinventing the wheel with Bioclip 2.0. So we've been working on an alternative to shearing for about 20 years now. People would be aware of Bioclip and robot shearing and so on, we took a different approach to those. They were basically trying to replicate shearing, you know, getting the wool off by cutting it. One of them cut it, by a clip, cut it with a chemical, and um, robot shearing, of course, was using the same sort of um, equipment to, to cut wool. In case you missed it, about two decades ago, Bioclip emerged and was touted as a biological defleecing process. Sheep were given a single vaccination of something called epidermal growth factor, a naturally occurring protein that caused wool fibres to break. The fleece was then shed into a net the sheep was wearing and then later removed. We took a completely different approach to that. We decided that if it was possible to make wool weak, weak enough to be easily broken by a non-cutting machine, but strong enough to stay on in the field. Now, that was a pr- that's a pretty big ask. Um, and probably 20 years ago, we got some way towards that. We, we got a long way, actually. We created a weak point. We could break it with a little simple machine that didn't cut you. Um, but there was something missing, and that was we were doing it with a protein called Zane. And Zane is part of corn protein. And um, when we fed that to sheep, we found that it created the weak point we wanted. But we knew that feeding wasn't the way to go. We knew that we had to have better control of how much the animal got and for a short period of time. So we, we needed an injectable. And that's where we've made the big breakthrough now. It is completely different to Bioclip. This is not Bioclip 2. This is a completely different system. The idea is we create the weak point with an injection, which is done the same as farmers do for vaccinating sheep, subcutaneous, under the skin, and we wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, for the wool to grow under that weak point, and then we break it with a simple machine that just takes it off with no combs and cutters. In fact, we hope it'll be done without any people involved. It'll just be done with an automatic machine. It's also suitable for pregnant ewes, unlike Bioclip. Professor Phil Hind and his team recently demonstrated their research at a field day hosted by Australian Wool Innovation at Canago in southern New South Wales. George Millington from renowned South Australian merino stud Collinsville was pretty impressed. If there's anything that we can invest in as an industry to actually try and make sheep farming more attractive and try and make wool growing more attractive and easier for the grower to do, I think we should do it. At the moment, from what I've seen today, it's probably more being able to give a grower who wants to shear 200 sheep and is unable to get shearers for the day, but I think there'll still be a lot of room for large contract shearing teams uh, to shear in commercial situations. Ian Lugsden and his family used Bioclip on their merino flock at Hay in the New South Wales Riverina for several years. So he was keen to see the difference, especially given the nets that were used in the Bioclip process have been ditched. The only problem we had with it was getting the wool out of the nets. Because we have a lot of trefoil, um, the, the issue then was it took quite a while to get the wool out of the nets. The first two years, or the second and the third year, we actually sent it to China in the nets. And even the Chinese didn't want to pull it out of the nets. So that's telling you something how hard it is. While Professor Phil Hind and his team of researchers have worked out how to weaken the fibre via an injectable, they now need help with an engineering solution to remove the wool. At the moment we're looking at kind of plucking machines and so it just moves across the body and the, and the wool, when, when we get it right, the wool peels off the front of that plucking device and just we, we, we hope to remove it then with a, a vacuum system. Australian Wool Innovation CEO John Roberts is prepared to spend more money to make biological wool harvesting work. So far, the wool grower levy-funded research, development and marketing body has sunk $1.4 million into the research and will spend more to find an engineering solution. We want to spend as much as is needed on this, on this project. Um, right now, it's, it's, apparently it's enough, but I think going forward, when we get to the harvesting piece, we're going to need to invest more money, absolutely. 
Ultimately, what the industry wants to know is the on-farm cost of biological wool harvesting. Professor Phil Hind. Very early days to start predicting costs, to be honest. At the moment, the agent is our best candidate. I costed at the extraction that we're doing is about 20 cents a dose. Now, that's not what it's going to cost when it gets onto the market, but we're in the right ballpark, right? That was the University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind ending that story from Cara Jeffrey about the bio-wool harvesting. And if you want to know more about that story, you can tune into Landline this Sunday to find out more about that particular research. Can't get to the ABC Hobart Open House this Sunday? No worries, the Sunday program has you covered. Hi, I'm Lucy Cutting, and this weekend I'll bring you some of the highlights of the ABC Hobart Open House. Hi, it's Lisa Miller. And I'm Nate Byrne. Meet Lisa Miller and Nate Byrne from ABC News Breakfast. Learn about the history of the building and meet our feathered friends, A, B and C. All of this and more. This weekend, hear it on the ABC Listen app. From ABC Radio Hobart. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listener. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Still to come on the Country Hour, the very smelly durian harvest. Also, sparkling winemaker Ed Carr and the latest on the livestock markets with Richard Bailey plus the weather check. First up, the news headlines with Alison Costello. Thanks, Tony. Making news in Tasmania, former Olympian boxer Luke Jackson's expected to reappear in a Tasmanian court next month after being charged with one count of dealing with property reasonably suspected of being proceeds of crime. It's alleged $150,000 of cash was found at Hobart Airport in the 38-year-old's luggage on Friday as he prepared to fly from Hobart to Sydney. The new operator for Bridgewater's Greenpoint Medical Centre says they can't guarantee all patients will be able to access bulk billing. Last night, the state government announced your Hobart doctor will establish a permanent general practice at Greenpoint. The managing director says patients will be billed appropriately. Hundreds of projects promised by the former coalition government are under review after cost blowouts, but the Hobart City deal and Macquarie Point Urban Renewal proposal aren't included. That confirmation came from the Federal Assistant Minister for Transport, Carol Brown, speaking on ABC Radio Hobart's mornings program today. And football legend Ron Barassi is being remembered as a visionary of the game during a state memorial service. Several thousand people have turned out to the MCG, where Barassi won 10 premierships as a player and a coach for three clubs. I'll be back with more Tony at one o'clock. Thanks Alison. Coming up now, the uh, latest on the weather, Brooke Oakley from the Bureau joins us. Hi Brooke. Good afternoon Tony. Any rain? Well, there were some isolated showers and thunderstorms yesterday that brought some rainfall to southern, central and eastern parts of Tasmania. The highest rainfall to 9am this morning was 18 millimetres at Ooze, followed by 12 millimetres at Butler's Gorge. Since 9am this morning, there's been no significant rainfall. The main stories for today is that there's a lot of sea fog around about our maritime areas. And there was also some uh, radiation fog in the valleys early this morning. Warm and humid conditions do continue today with maximum temperatures on their way up and are expected to reach the high 20s about parts of the southeast and possibly 30 degrees in the upper Derwent Valley. Hobart is currently the warmest part of the state at the moment with 26 degrees. But this warm weather is coming to an end. A cold front tomorrow morning will bring a cool change and a few showers as it moves over the state. So for tomorrow, showers about the west, extending statewide during the morning and then easing and contracting to the northeast in the afternoon. There is the chance that we'll see some mid-level thunderstorms about the northwest during the morning as that front moves through and some patchy fog also during the morning before the front moves through. North to northwesterly winds, fresh and gusty about the northeast, then shifting cooler west to southwesterly during the morning. We will see a generally westerly airstream prevail on Sunday and for much of next week. So for that time period, showers will be mostly about western Tasmania. So on Sunday, showers about the west, extending to southern and central areas during the afternoon and then contracting to the west in the evening, mainly fine elsewhere. On Monday, fine apart from light showers about the west and far south. And then on Tuesday, showers about the west and south easing during the morning and also isolated showers developing about the northeast during the afternoon. 
Okay, what sort of temperatures are we looking at for the weekend when the, the cold front hits? They're going to be significantly colder than today. So just a reminder for today, the temperatures into the mid to high 20s. For the weekend, particularly about western and southern parts of Tasmania, those temperatures will drop down to the high teens. Some parts of the state will see temperatures still in the 20s on Saturday, with Launceston expecting a top of 23 and sorry 26, and Devonport 23. And temperatures generally in the high teens to low 20s are expected for Sunday and the start of next week. Not a bad drop of rain at Ooze, a place where they do need it. That's right. Those thunderstorms, where they did move over, they did bring some much-needed rain for parts of the state, but they were very isolated, so not everyone did receive that rainfall. Now, what sort of warnings do we have, Brooke? For today, there is a strong wind warning current for the Lower East Coast, and then for tomorrow, a strong wind warning for northern and eastern coastal waters from Sandy Cape to Southeast Cape, excluding Banks Strait and Franklin Sound and a strong wind warning for Storm Bay and Frederick Henry and Norfolk Bays. So for the coastal waters in a little bit more detail, today northeast to northwesterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots about the east during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres, and also an east to northeasterly building to 1 to 2 metres in the south. And the Wave Rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.3 metres. In the north, confused below 1 metre. And in the east, a northeasterly of 1 to 2 metres. And the Wave Rider buoy at Marar Island is currently reading 1.3 metres. Tomorrow, we'll start the day with northerly winds at 15 to 25 knots about the east. West to southwesterly winds at 15 to 25 knots about the west, extending throughout during the morning and tending south to southwesterly in the east. And those winds are reaching up to 30 knots about the northeast and south at times. The swell in the west and south, west to southwesterly 1 to 2 metres, building to 2 to 3 metres in the evening, and also east to northeasterly 1 to 2 metres in the south. In the northeast to northeasterly around one metre, and in the east northeasterly two to three metres. Good on you, Brooke. Thank you for that. Thank you. See you later, Brooke Oakley from the bureau with the latest information for you on the text line. Uh, Roger, good day, Roger. Seems like the big companies get bigger and richer, and the smaller farmers just get trodden on. My heart goes out to them talking about uh, the dairy industry there. Now, coming up, we shall talk to Ed Carr, sparkling winemaker. Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast. Some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows. Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app. Hello, can we make it science week again? And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And amazingly, Bernard Brain, g'day Bernard, uh, lives at Ooze. He received four millimetres at Rotherwood, which is four Ks from Ooze. He has a vineyard and that vineyard does supply some grapes to uh, this particular winery. Sparkling winemaker House of Arras has taken home gold in the 10th annual Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championships, claiming the title for the best Australian sparkling at an event in London. The House of Arras has just been taken over by Handpicked Wines, a company which also owns vineyards in Victoria and South Australia and is specialising in premium and Australian wines. Chief winemaker Ed Carr told Fiona Breen the competition at the International Wine Show was very strong. It's an international show, so there was a thousand wines from 19 countries and then they split that down to the regions within the com- countries. So, Is it tough competition? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's, um, as I say, it's judged regionally and nationally, so there was a lot of Australian producers in, in the same competition before it moved on to the sort of global awards, but... Um, yeah, I think you'll see some the best Australian producers, as I said, really just um, looking to get the in, um, endorsements for their um, own, own ones in very different styles as well. So, 
it's never easy competition, no matter what you do, but um, this one is very well judged with three very strong sparkling wine and champagne judges. So um, they sort of know their stuff and, um, yeah, they'll uh, certainly pick pick the eyes out of them and pick the very best wines. Well, Ed Carr, tell us a little bit about the House of Arras. Now, it wasn't that long ago that there were some changes in ownership. Not long ago at all, actually, about a week and a half ago. Um, <laughs> oh, that's been in the pot a little while. I mean, it started um, – the Aris brand actually went on the market in May this year and um, ultimately the deal was closed on the 25th of October. So Aris now is owned by Handpicked Wines, which is a great great opportunity for the brand, really. it's uh, They're very supportive and want to take the brand to bigger and bigger and better things. So they've purchased all the stock and the wine winemaking teams in place. So I think we'll see a lot of support in market for it as well. So I think it's all positive, really. Well, tell me a little bit about Arras and where they get their grapes from. Arras really is a um, Tasmania-wide brand. We don't source from one sub-region within Tasmania. Tasmania, I guess we started in um, this sort of venture in 1995 was our first vintage and we've never looked at one single region to produce our wine from. We think we we have a lot better choice and ultimately make better better wines, more consistent and stronger wines if we have multiple regions to blend from. From 1998 onwards, we've only used Tasmanian fruit in the blend and in the blends because it's multiple and um, yeah we've found that we get great um, diversity from each of the sub-regions from the north to the south to the east coast that um, gives us a great blending opportunities and makes stronger wines for us so we don't identify as one um, region but we absolutely identify as Tasmanian. Okay, well, you've been with Aras for quite a long time, very successful. What is it about the Tasmanian grapes that you think uh, sort of sets Aras apart? Well, yeah, if we go back to the start, I've been making sparkling wines from all cold climate regions around Australia. And in the mid-90s, we really looked at Tasmania to be the premium region for us. It's it's very cool. Um which is ideal for the style of wine that we're trying to make, um, where you get you know nice elegant wines made from fine fruit with a good acidity, um, and there's a lot of diversity in the fruit as well. So from the multiple regions, so basically it does though come down to a very cool maritime climate and um, some very different soils, but very um, strong soils in the sense that are suitable for viticulture so um and it's basically dry too i mean the rain shadow created by the by the west coast uh, means grape growing is very is very manageable so um yeah it has worked out so well for us in the sense of uh, great um, diversity of vineyards with each each expressing their own little terroir that we can use in our blends In terms of Tasmanian grapes, grapes are are very popular these days. You've been using Tasmanian grapes for a long time. What about security of supply? Well, we've looked at all ways to secure fruit. Um, Obviously, it's it's essential for our blends moving forward that we get continued supplies of quality fruit. So as a group now with hand-picked wines, there's three company vineyards and two of those are dedicated to still wines, not not sparkling, but we have one company-owned vineyard at Piper's River. We have some leased vineyards and we have um, a very strong grower base as well. So growers that supply fruit to us under contracts um, to ensure that we, um, you know, we get the fruit of the right amount and the right quality for our lens. Aras Chief Winemaker Ed Carr, congratulations. Thanking you. Awards and uh, thanks so much for joining the country. Hour. Okay, thank you. Cheers. That was Chief Winemaker for the House of Arras, Ed Carr, who's back in Australia after winning the big award for the Best Australian Sparkling at the annual International Champagne and Wine World Championships.
Well, you might be able to smell it through the radio. It's harvest time in the Northern Territory for what's regarded as the world's smelliest fruit. I'm talking about durians, which are a large spiky fruit with a smell so offensive that in some countries they're banned on public transport and hotels. Matt Brand visited Shung Han Si's durian farm for a smell. I can smell it, Han. I can smell these durians. We're standing in front of a trailer packed with your durians. Tell us what's in front of us here. Oh, we've got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This <laughs> morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. And when you get closer, uh, the, the salvation starts with the mouth starts drooling. <laughs> How do you describe the smell? Uh, it is a, uh, it's a mixture of... <laughs> Really strong garlic and, and, you know, a bit of old socks, but it's a very fragrantly pleasant smell for me. Some people say they'll have a little bit of sulfuric smell, like, like maybe a leaking gas tap <laughs> from a leaking gas bottle. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so it, it's, it's, for us and most Asian, it's, it's a fragrance that we, we, we would, you know, kind of linger towards and, you know, t- trace towards really quickly. It makes for a pungent shed, that is for sure. And these are some of your first for the season. They are tree ripened. Yep. Uh, how is your season shaping up this year? It started off looking great with great flowering this year in, in Jan- July. Um, and then when the weather got a little bit warmer than expected, a lot of it dropped back. We thought we didn't have much. However, we, uh, when, when the time grew and the fruit started getting bigger, we looked up. There was a lot more than we expected. So... We are looking at close to maybe 15 tonnes, so more than last year. And we've got one massive durian here. We weighed it earlier. Mm-hmm. Over three kilos. 3.8, I believe. 3.8. Yeah. Do they get much bigger than that? They do in, in other countries. I think the largest we ever had was about four and a half. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a big boy or girl. <laughs> uh, she smells great. And yeah, I just picked it up this morning. I just drove past her and I was like, woo. She's big. <laughs> and I went down and picked it up and tagged her. And where are all these durians off to? Uh, most of it will be going to Sydney and Melbourne in, on Wednesday onwards. And what are prices like for you? So our premium, premium grade durian is sitting at about $32 a kilo wholesale. So mark up anything beyond that is probably about close to $40, $45 at the retail. And our uh, normal durian is sitting closer towards about 20 to $22 a kilo. Okay. And just looking at these durians, I mean, they are big. They are so spiky and, and that famous smell. So I'm sort of just amazed at how some of them have clearly been attacked by birds. Yeah. What, what bird is getting through this ginormous spiky fruit? Uh, well, we have getting sung a little bit more um, cockatoos and corellas, right. mostly cockatoos are, are, are attacking these. They just like to attack a particular variety, I guess, because it's more fragrant and a different smell smell than than the uh, the, the other durians. And unfortunately, it is our premium grade one that we, <laughs> that, we that we that we try to sell and promote. We're getting a fair more of that being attacked. Your best variety is, is the one they're targeting. Correct. They've developed a taste for your... Yes, nothing else. Just that variety I've noticed. And unfortunately, it's a bit annoying. How are they doing it? That's what gets me. Because if I was a bird, I wouldn't want to sit on that fruit. It's so spiky. They have, I guess, steel of teeth, steel of mouth to bite through it. They are pretty ingenuous. And yeah, they they, they like to nibble here and there. And unfortunately, they don't want to finish all fruit. Yep. Has this always been a problem or just something that's... Just slightly recently it's picked up. We noticed a little bit more last year. Um, and then this year again more. I guess because we had a farm down there that used to grow a lot of other melons, and they used to keep all the cockatoos and corellas down there during this time of the year, so we didn't have much of a bird problem. Once they switched that over... That melon to- farm's becoming a croc farm now. Yes, so, and- so unfortunately, <laughs> cockatoos and corellas don't like crocodiles, so, so, so they decided to uh, immigrate down to uh, neighbouring farms. And unfortunately, if they some sign to liking taste to durian when there's nothing else left to eat. Wow. Yeah, because your mango season's done. Yes, our mango season done last week, and we're over it. We're so happy. That's very unusual for us, because we're generally juggling mangoes and durian at the same time. All righty, then. I think we've reached that time. This is, this, is, this is a story I get to do about once a year. Yep. I open up a durian. And, and let's see how long Matt survives without gagging. <laughs> All right, let's go get one. Hang on a second. There's a real secret, isn't there, to, to cutting them open? Yeah, there is. Uh, so there are dedicated lines here. They're like fault lines. So you can actually use a pair of knife, secateurs, or anything just to crack it open. 
So we'll grab it here. You see how soft it is? It's delicate. Can you grab a little segment and I guess tell our audience what makes durian special and what you look for in terms of flavour in durian? So for durian, generally it is quite soft. That's what you want to do. Very soft. It also uh, has to be a very strong pungent smell. Like, and it's more of a uh, like a uh, garlicky smell, oniony smell. So once we consume it, we eat it. Uh, it, it is it is very. Um, I'll grab a piece too. Yeah, yeah. Here that. we go. So you eat it, <laughs> and it's um yeah. So it's like that really oniony taste, really onion skin flavour. Um, it's got that sulfuric taste and and smooth, smooth. It's very smooth, and it's very sweet. It's the taste. It's very different to the smell. Yeah. It's a lot more like a custardy... Dessert. That's why they put it in ice cream. Yes. But funny part, they also put it in hot pots. And and pizzas in some Asian countries. No no wonder the cockatoos. They've they've worked it out. They're picking the most expensive fruit in town. (laughs) Move over mangoes, move over rambutans and... Water apples, it's durian. <laughs> Always good to see you, Han. Thanks for sharing some durian. No, thanks. We'll finish this one off here. Yeah, there. Durian farmer Han Xiong Sia talking there to Matt Brown at the durian farm, the very smelly fruit. I think Matt enjoys doing that story. Uh, Peter from Golden Valley says, Durian is my favourite fruit. I lived in Indonesia for 10 years and can never get enough of it. It has a strong smell, but I describe it as a pungent aroma. Well, time on a Friday afternoon to check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well. Another beautiful day in paradise. Yes, yes. The last two or three days have been quite warm right throughout the state, I think. And I certainly noticed in the garden that, you know, you, you've sort of got to keep water up to stuff and and so on. I, although I, I went out to Cressy on uh, Wednesday to have a look at TQM, but the countryside looks very well. But certainly it only needs a few, you know, a week of pretty dry weather and you'll see things turn pretty quickly yeah tqm we had uh, jake on during the week and uh, just amazing what they're doing uh, doing a great job yeah it's terrific look you know i think i suppose we're all hoping it would happen quicker but it's happened and it's and it's it's going to be killing around about fifteen thousand smalls a week which is you know lambs mutton and and the, in the season calves even if you compare that with this time last year it's about double so you know, that's a, it's a good, really good effort, and uh, I hadn't been through their work since their their alterations in their their new um, slaughter for boning room. You know, there was a there was a, a, a skin puller there that they they put in, um, and it's amazing the way it works. And uh, there's you know just a lot of new things going on out there. And Jake was telling me a lot about their their overseas markets and, and uh, you know, pretty positive about where things are going. And as I said, the, the countryside going out there, it looks remarkably well, but it, it will dry pretty quickly from now on. Okay, let's look at cattle. Uh, what's What's been going on in the cattle markets uh, on the mainland? Cattle markets, too? yeah, no, cattle markets are probably pretty similar to they've been for about the last month. They sort of look odd little dips here and there. Certainly some of the secondary cattle are, are still hard to sell, but even even the really good cattle, you know, look, you go to Mortlake or Bunawatha or even into Wagga on Monday, um, a lot of your trade cattle are only making 150 to 230 cents a kilo. You know, when you think that, you, I don't know, this time last year, I reckon we were... I don't know, five or six hundred cents. So, you know, it's a big, it's a big correction. The cow market's probably held up as well as anything. A lot of the better cows are making somewhere between one sixty and one ninety cents a kilo. So that's better than per kilo than a lot of the tray cattle. Tops of the of the bullocks and grown steers are sort of getting a little bit over two hundred cents, but the vast majority in that sort of one eighties to two hundreds. Just looking at a number of store sales through Victoria in the last sort of week or ten days, and you know. You got a Yay, Euroa, Colac, Bensdale, Pakenham, and Mortlake, and every one of them said there was a glimmer of hope that you know things had just turned the corner, just in places, cattle fifty to hundred dollars better in places, which is good news because by gee they're coming off a pretty pretty um, low sort of base to to go up, but. You'd have to think that there's got to be some light at the end of the tunnel here pretty soon. Now, lamb and sheep. Lamb market, um, because, well, first thing you've got to remember is that we had, that, that Victoria had a, whole, had a long weekend because of the 
well, sort of, they almost had <laughs> four days off, but they had certainly had, they didn't kill Tuesday, a lot of them, um, because of the cub. So the numbers were greater in a lot of places, and particularly in Western Victoria, where Ballarat suddenly, and this happens every year, they, they went from about 4,000 to 23,000 in a week. Um, and this, and within two weeks, I'll go to two-day sale and have fifty or sixty thousand lambs there. There's some bigger numbers there. Um, Wagga yesterday, similar numbers. So you would think that this will be a test. This next three to four weeks, I reckon, whether or not supply uh, will outstrip demand. Certainly, the trade lamb job has come back sort of 5 to $10 a head. Most of the heavy lambs are holding up okay. Perhaps a little bit cheaper at Wagga yesterday, but you had to have a pretty good lamb to make over 500 cents. But a lot of the heavy lambs sort of 480 to 500 cents a kilo. But then very quickly, the trade weight lambs sort of are back to 420 to 460 cents a kilo. And in a lot of these markets, particularly Bendigo and Wagga, they're saying that well over half their number of lambs are basically store lambs or store quality lambs. Now, some of these are being bought to go to the Middle East, but the rest of them are going back to the paddock. So that indicates that that season in the north is starting to get pretty average, and that'll be the key, whether or not... that. Obviously, the good quality lambs are going to create the premium. So um be interesting to see what happens over the next sort of month, I reckon, Tony, there. And uh, mutton market... Um, just actually, just before I leave lambs, in, in our local market on Tuesday, we had about a thousand new seasons lambs, and I imagine that will continue on uh, now for a while. Um, and they, most of those were pretty fresh and sappy, but certainly if they're starting to go woolly, I think the recommendation from certainly Jake Oliver at TQM, and I say it every year, shear them early. I know it's a costly exercise now, but they'll do so much better. Uh, mutton, oh, not much change here. Slightly better in a couple of interstate markets. Some of their sheep are making 25 to $35 in that sort of bracket. As the numbers grow, it is, uh, it's not good news. Most of the mutton sort of make anywhere from 80 to 120 cents a kilo in that sort of bracket. So interesting to see what happens there also, because obviously here in Tassie anyway, we're going to have, you know, quite a few, once the lambs start to get weaned, we're going to have a quite a few cold-for-age mutton ewes coming onto the market. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not we can handle all of them. I know talking to TQM the other day that they are very keen to try and stay on top of that backlog of, of mutton. OK, Richard, you have a great weekend. Will do, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us next Wednesday to check the Power Runner markets. You have a great weekend. We'll catch you after midday, Monday on the Country Hour.